February 11th is the 42nd anniversary of the revolution that transformed Iran from a Western-line monarchy to an anti-Western Islamist theocracy. So this seemed like an appropriate moment to have a conversation with Ray Takei, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, one of America's leading analysts of contemporary Iran, and the author of a new book, Last Shah, America, Iran, and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty. Also with us is Ruel Mark Gerecht, a senior fellow at FDD, a former officer in the CIA's Directorate of Operations, and also an expert in Iran, both contemporary and ancient. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you could be with us too here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Ray, let me start with what seems like an obvious question. With all that's happening in Iran, and with all that Iran's rulers are doing in the Middle East and beyond, and with the Biden administration looking to get back into a deal with Iran's rulers about which we'll talk. And so with all that, why have you been thinking much less writing about the fall of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi? Well, thanks. First of all, thanks very much for having me here uh, today. And it's always good to be with Ruel. And why writing about the fall of the Shah? Because I think now we can actually do it with some measure of perspective. Uh, we've gone beyond polemics and actually it's become a subject of historical interest. We have revelations of new documents so we can better understand one of the most important revolutions that took place in contemporary Middle East and one of the great populist revolutions of the 20th century. Uh, and I, th I think when you look at the fall of the Shah and the matter it came about, there are a lot of resonance with today, both in terms of the Islamic Republic itself and American policy toward Iran as well. Hmm. Uh, you know, you guys know this, listeners may not. I spent a few months in Iran in 1979, arriving about the same time Ayatollah Khomeini uh, returned from exile at that point in France, where he seemed not to have enjoyed the wines and the cheese uh, terribly. It, it became clear to me that at that point that when I got there, that he had broad support, not just Islamists, I remember young people, very secular, I guess mostly social democratic types, telling me that they were sure he valued them as part of a coalition that he was leading. They turned out to be very mistaken, didn't they? Most certainly. And they were mistaken by deliberate attempt uh, because Khomeini was rather clear about his objectives. He could be a little ambiguous here and there, but he was rather clear that his aim was to create an Islamic state that would be governed by Islamic canons and led by clerical rulers. Uh, he had little room for liberalism, secularism, or other such things. Uh, his hatreds were ancient. His determination was quite profound. So he was quite clear about what he wanted. Um, he never had much room time for parliaments and democratic rule, and he was profoundly contemptuous of liberalism and the West, which he identified, of course, as the basis of liberal thought. I mean, I, I, I'd go even so far as to say that uh, he is uh, perhaps the clearest of the major revolutionary figures of the 20th century, he's certainly as clear as Lenin was. And the volume of material that was out there to read of his was quite substantial. It remains uh, one of the great failings uh, of, of so many in the late 1970s that they uh, just seemed to be obdurately unaware of this or chose to, to remain ignorant. You got interested in Iran before the revolution, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I started in the 1970s. I was actually ready to go study in Iran. Uh, and um, I, I always remember fondly uh, when it became obvious that, uh, you know, things were not going to go well, that I had uh, 
uh, uh, a, a very great professor, Martin Dixon, who uh, he joked with me, he says, you know, now is the time to start Ottoman studies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was it was a it was an early passion, and uh, the I have to say the 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 revolution amplified that passion. I just want to add one thing about what Ruel said, which is quite correct. Khomeini's uh, body of work, the body of writing and speeches, go back to the 1940s. Right. I mean, it was 30 years of quite persistent and dogmatic rejection of the things that he dogmatically rejected violent power. Uh, so this is go back to very long periods of time. His contempt for Israel predated Israel's creation, <laughs> his contempt for the idea of, of his anti-Semitism. And I think it really does show the hubris and slash naivete of uh, many Ar Iranian players in the 1970s that they thought that they somehow uh, would get the better of, of the cleric and that uh, he didn't really mean what he had been writing. Uh, I mean, even more than than Westerners, I think Iranians themselves are culpable and responsible for the predicament that they got themselves into. I, I, I actually compliment uh, Ray on this. I, one, I'd say that The Last Shaw is a very, very enjoyable uh, book to read. And uh, Ray does better than I think anyone else that I can think of, of trying to restore some agency to Iranian. Mm. Uh, and that is a problem, I think, in a great deal of Western scholarship where we are so egocentric that we we can't let us not be the primary player where in fact uh, Iranians are the primary player if I remember correctly and I think I think I do Bernard Lewis whom I think we all knew and you studied with him at Princeton if I recall you knew him Ray as well he had had written about uh about Khomeini but in particular what was it 1970 that Khomeini wrote his book on Islamic jurisprudence that basically, I mean, I, he had written before about this, but the concept that the ruling class of Iran or any Islamic country should be the clerical class, that's who should be running the show. And if I remember correctly, Bernard Lewis attempted to or, or proposed to write about this for the New York Times, the New York Times turned him down. Are you, do you remember that? Well, I mean, I, I, I do remember that, uh, you know, Bernard had uh, tried to get as many people as possible in Washington information about uh, Khomeini because he was uh, certainly, uh, he, he wasn't, as the New York Times editorial page had described him, an enigma. Uh, so he was doing his best uh, to do so. And I, I do recall uh, quite pointedly that there was a gentleman who was in charge of the Iran desk at that time, uh, Henry Precht, uh, I later got to know his daughter quite well in, in Istanbul, that uh, uh, he actually referred to, to Bernard as a sort of a Zionist agent spreading disinformation uh, about Khomeini, that Khomeini wasn't as bad and as convulsive as uh, Bernard was suggesting. I would say the book that you're talking about, Cliff, which was a collection of his lectures, mm, right, that right. was published in 1970 under the title Islamic Government. Right. And that book was actually at Princeton University Library, at Harvard University Library. It was available throughout yeah. the West. And I think Lewis just went to the library, as he yeah. always did, and yeah. read it. <laughs> right. So one, one of the revelations in your book I found was that the intelligence community, uh, which Ruel would become a member of, um, knew did know full well that the Shah was getting shaky in the 1970s. And yet President Carter, rather curiously, in December of 1977, announced or made a toast, I forget exactly, and called, but famously or infamously called Iran an island of stability. Was he not informed? Did he not believe? Or was he just kind of ad-libbing to be polite and flattering to his guests, to his host? Well, that particular comment that he made in the toast on New Year's Eve in Iran was actually not in the original speech. He sort of ad-libbed ad it. He sometimes used to get carried away. In terms of intelligence community, I would say the following about it. And this record by no means was perfect. Uh, 
intelligence community as a whole, and there are different branches within it, got number of things right. Number one, it spotted signs of discontent in Iran in the 1970s, which was hard to miss. When Richard Nixon arrived there uh, for one of his state visits, he was subject to four independent bombings. Number two, they spotted the rise of religion as an ideology of dissent. Uh, so they spotted discontent and the rise of religion. There are a number of things that they didn't get right, which I don't think you could get right, predicting a revolution. Right. Uh, a revolution is an extraordinary event. I don't think it can be prognosticated ahead of time. I don't think you can even understand it when you're living through it. Mm. And, as, and frankly, as someone who's done this a couple of times, it's very difficult even to retrospectively chronicle it. Uh, so a lot of times, for instance, in August 1978, August 1st, the intelligence community would write a report saying the Shah will remain in power. That judgment was correct in August 1st, 1978. <laughs> it was not correct maybe three weeks later. <laughs> that is how fast the events move during the revolution, where a judgment made on one day is correct in that day, on that day, but not two weeks later. And a lot of people retrospectively go back and said, in August 1978, you said this, and in February that happened. Right. So and that, that's been the difficulty of the intelligence community. There's one thing and one thing the intelligence community got wrong from day one to February 11, 1979 that even if the Shah was incapable of acting, the Iranian military would step in and have sufficient cohesion and caliber to control the situation. So essentially, they invested a great deal in the ability of military to control events independently of the Shah. Today, we say the same thing about the, how formidable Islamic Republic's internal security organs are. It's the same thing. Uh, so that, that's one thing they got wrong. And when you get that wrong, it kind of misinforms a lot of your other choices. Right. You know, let me draw on that because in, in 1978, you mentioned August, by November, Ambassador Sullivan, this is in your book, had was sending a cable to Washington suggesting that Khomeini might be persuaded to compromise with the moderate dissidents. Right. And then here's a quote, to return to Iran, to return to Iran in triumph and hold a Gandhi-like position in the political constellation. And you write, I found this interesting, as an emissary of a secular republic known for its pragmatism, Sullivan simply could not comprehend revolutionaries who meant what they said. And let me just add this and tell me if you think I'm right. Yes, but also modernist secularists, they find it hard to believe that religion can be taken that seriously by anybody. They, they would think no, and, and by the way, the people as a reporter I was talking to, Probably didn't. They were kind of, it was nice, but that's not them. Last thing they expected was what happened, which you should talk about, which is that they would either be arrested, executed, or forced to flee back to Austin, Texas to teach at some university uh, if they were very lucky. Uh, it's odd that we get religion wrong because the history of the West itself, religious struggles and religious wars, Bill Sullivan was another person, in my opinion, that has given, been given a bad rap. Bill Solomon was a good foreign service officer in the following sense. He was very good at assessing people he met. So he met the Shah and he met the generals of the Shah and said, these people are worthless. He was not good at assessing people he did not meet, the exiles in Paris. Mm -hmm. So he, the moderates in Iran that he encountered, he assumed they were the opposition. Mm. He assumed they were the center of the active. So his cable traffic has an uneven quality to it. And he tells Rick Brzezinski and others that the Shah is incapable of making decisions. He's indecisive. And the military you're investing in is actually, in his phrase, a paper tiger. Because these are the people he encountered, he dealt with. He never encountered Khomeini. Also, I mean, it's also important to remember that for foreign service officers or for case officers, you know, even if the local government uh, doesn't prevent them from seeing dissidents, they're not inclined really to do so because it does put them in a stressful, can put them in a stressful situation. And so there's always friction, pressure going in the opposite direction. And it, it really does take a lot. And even if you have a very, you know, perspicacious officer out there, a diplomat, um, 
you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it can be one man, one woman saying something in a sea of, of, of either neglect or opposing views. And it's, it's very difficult for that to register. When you go back and you look at the historical record, you can go, oh, you know, that was a very, very bright fellow. And he saw what was coming and would that we had listened to him. But in reality, you know, that almost never, never happened. Also in your book, Ray, this is middle of the Cold War. And so his big concern was the Tuda. The, the, the communists. The yes. communists. Yes. But that, that was, that's what we have to worry about, not some crazy that's religious. You know. uh, yeah. That's always, that, that runs through that, that distorting obsession with uh, whatever the remnants of the Communist Party runs through this entire narrative. The fear that, uh, that the Khomeini people are not going to be formidable enough and the communists are going to, the most organized the history of discipline and the Today Party had a history in Iran of, of long period of activism, but it was eviscerated by the time you get to 1970s. But that that's one thing that was that was missed: the fear of the Soviet Union and so forth. And the ironic aspect of the, all this is when we talk about the great powers, is that the Shah had the support of both the United States and in some way the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is not a player in this particular cataclysmic event. That's what's the curious about it. This is a distinctively a non-Cold War crisis. Well, and there's there's actually a, a, a KGB memoir out there. His name will come to me in one second. Who's in country during the uh, revolution, and uh, he's very fairly open, at least in retrospect, saying we have no we had no bloody idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the KGB wasn't in better shape than we were. Khomeini was a, an Ayatollah, a religious scholar, uh, but Ray, you write that his concept of Shia contravened the dominant Shia thought at that time. Is, is, that, is that right? Am I remembering correctly? Uh, yes, right. And Ruel can expand on this too. It, it, it contravened normative Shia political teaching, namely the idea that not just a clerical class should come to power, but one cleric from the clerical class should assume power and assume over temporal affairs. That was not unique in the sense that other religious scholars had spoken about that before. He didn't originate the doctrine of the Juris Council, but he was one of, it's a minority opinion within the larger spectrum of Shi'i clerical community. And certainly no has no real place, I don't know, has no place in the Sunni faith. No, yeah, no. I mean, I think you can you can sort of again with the benefit of hindsight, perhaps you can draw a straight line between someone like you know Bakhtiar Majlisli and uh, Ayatollah Khomeini that there is this strain and some Shiite thought about you know jurists being preeminent. Ray's uh, you know absolutely right. The notion that one jurist would be preeminent was an innovation on the part of Khomeini, uh, but. Uh, you know, he tested, a, 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 you know, I, I think a principle that had been there before that if, you know, if secular authority is illegitimate in Shiism, uh, which it is, if say, because you, you, you have to wait for the, for the, you know, the, the hidden imam to return, the Messiah, that if, if that's illegitimate, that does seem reasonable to say that those individuals who know the holy law the best should be preeminent in society. So, you know, Khomeini took that idea that that's not really a philosophy, but it's sentiment, and just took it to its logical revolutionary conclusion. Also, however, and I think I've heard you talk about this, Ruel, I know I have, um, this was not a, 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 a pure interpretation of Islamism or Islam or Islamic thought, because there have been, there were aspects of Marxism that had filtered into the ideology, social justice concepts, as it were, um, that that came from non-Islamic sources or vaguely Islamic sources, several of them preeminent in Iran. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Marxism is everywhere. It's not just Iran, it's dominant throughout uh, all the third world. It's the, uh, you you know, to to be chic, you're a Marxist. Uh, so, um, you know, that it's not surprising that you would uh, see the penetration of Marxist thought. I mean, when I was in, uh, in, in Najaf in 2003, the Shiite holy site in Iraq, and I was going through at that time, I think it's mostly been destroyed now, 
the great library of, of, of Najaf. And I was just looking around books to see what was there. I mean, uh, there was a lot of Marxist literature in Arabic all over the place. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's effect, you might say, was uh, lingering. Ray, so moving forward, the, the, when the Shah understood what was happening, you write that he believed the monarch should not kill his subjects. His successors have not shared that, that sentiment. Do you think that if he had been more ruthless, he could have put down this revolution? This is a debate uh, which, if he would have to be ruthless and his generals would have to be ruthless. And I think the generals mirrored the Shah in their indecisiveness. And the Shah was not, was a lot of things. He was cynical, he was arrogant, certainly, but he was not cruel. And he confronted a leader in Khomeini who was completely indifferent to human life. And that, 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 that cleavage is, I think, responsible for sex. Khomeini had no problem with large numbers of human beings dying for the cause of God. Well, he uh, killed quite a few of them and later regretted he hadn't killed more. My, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. He had, he thousands, had, not hundreds, thousands, right? Thousands. And, and, then, and then he sent another hundreds of thousands to death during the Iran-Iraq war. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, to yeah. achieve an objective which was unrealizable for eight years, uh, for at least six years that Iran continued the war after Iraq was willing to sign an armistice in 1982. He was completely and utterly indifferent to human life, including his own son. When his own son Mustafa died, I think his quote was, when they told him he died, he said, those who come from God return to God. Mm -hmm. I don't believe he attended the funeral. Well, I, I no, think I don't think so either. I mean, I have questions. Yeah, you figure he would put that on his schedule, like today's yeah. son funeral. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a question. I mean, uh, another hypothetical for Ray. I mean, suppose, uh, uh, you know, Reza Shaw had not been removed. Um, and, or you can say he is removed. Do, do you think, do you think that Mohammed Reza actually adopted a different approach to the military from his father? that uh, his son seemed to, you know, like to have sycophants everywhere and removed, as you uh, very admirably discussed in the book, uh, you know, removed a lot of men of talent. Well, so did his father. But the question would be, did his father maintain greater respect for the military? And because he was such a forceful personality, uh, didn't engage in quite the cleaning exercise that his son did. The son distrusted powerful figures, uh, and he worried constantly about coups against him. And to some extent, there's some justification for people plotting against him. Uh, so he wanted essentially a system of control whereby nobody made decisions but him, and he eventually got people who couldn't make decisions without him. And as the great Persian scholars and Lampin said, he was a dictator who couldn't dictate. Uh, he couldn't rule Iran and he wouldn't let anybody else do it. Uh, but the fact that he created by mid-60s onward, not just in the military, but in the civilian sector as well, individuals who could not make decisions, and that's what they were there for. And, when, and this is why Robert Heiser is sent to Iran by Jimmy Carter in 1979, I think in January 1979, to see what he can do with the Iranian military. Heiser shows up and it's the... And it's a, it's Friday, it's a day off, it's a, it's a holiday. And he walks into the barrack, there's nobody there. And so he calls the head of the Iranian military, says, where is everybody? He goes, well, we have a day off. He goes, no, you don't, there's a revolution in the street. Everybody back to their offices. What do you mean you have the day off? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the revolution doesn't take a day off. Uh, and when Heiser asked them after a year of this revolt, what plans do you have? They said, we have no plans. The Shah makes plans. Uh, <laughs> And the Shah made no plans. Uh, as as Agnes Shirzahedi recently told me, uh, the Shah's foreign minister and his last minister, his last ambassador to here to the United States, the revolution didn't win; we collapsed. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something to that. Right. So I mean, ju just to remind people of the chronology: January sixteenth, nineteen seventy-nine, the Shah flees the country. Yes. A few weeks later, February first. Um, the Ayatollah Khomeini arrives from mm -hmm. 
yeah. from, from, from France. And he declares very honestly, as you discussed, that this is not a nationalist rebellion. This is not about Iran. This is a Quranic rebellion, an Islamic rebellion. The following month in March, a referendum is held um, on the founding of an Islamic Republic. And there was a yes ballot colored green and a red ballot covered no. And voters had to request one or the other. And I remember covering this, this, this polling uh, and I was with a, 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 a producer. I was working on a documentary for PBS, and my producer was Iranian and very, very much pro-revolution and pro-Khomeini. He was not an Islamist, but he was one of these people I tell you about, very pro. And he saw that I didn't appear terribly impressed by this, and he said, "Why not?" And I said, "Well, it's not secret balloting for one." And he said, "You think people will vote any would vote any differently?" If it were secret balloting, if they didn't have to ask red or green, if there weren't uh, imams, mullahs in the voting booths, and I said, no, not this time, but maybe next time. And so you're setting a very bad precedent. And he got very, very angry, angry with me. And then it was, I guess, and comment on anything you want, but it was over the months that followed that, that the liberals, the social democrats, the communists, the students, anybody who wasn't seen as absolutely with Khomeini, even if they were loyal, they began to be cast aside. Women's rights were curtailed. You started to see all the women in chadors. Religious minorities began to be outright persecuted and Islamic courts were established. I mean, that's when it started to roll out, right? Yes, and another group of people that were persecuted along the lines that you suggested were traditional clerics. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a special court of clergy created. I don't think that had precedent before. No. A court just dealing with members of the clergy who do not subscribe to the existing orthodoxy as arcane as that orthodoxy was. I don't think there's a precedent of that. No, that it, it was a truly uh, a remarkable innovation. And it, it just goes to show you how far they were going. And again, the I don't know if you want to call it uh, Marxist importation, but uh, you know it, it shows you that this was a very, very modern revolutionary movement. It's, it in fact isn't, you know, the seventh century coming at you. I think there was a lot of commentary about that, uh, in part because some of the things they did were so uh, cool, and you did have the. Re turn of, you know, uh, child marriage and those things, but this was a very modern movement. One thing I, about the period after the revolution, and I think it's important to talk about this, the period that you were there in Iran cliff, March 1979 and so forth, is the level of blood that was shed, the executions, uh, because the standard practice of the Islamic Republic was to essentially have a very quick trial, which wasn't even a trial. When General Pakramov was being tried, he asked the court judge, uh, an entirely deranged man named Sadeh Khalkhali, who was actually mentally deranged. And he said, what does corruption of earth mean? The charge he was in. It was, what does corruption right. of earth mean? He said, it's, it's what you're guilty of. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, there was no, I mean, and execute, and then the person would be executed. And once he's executed, his picture would be taken. And as you recall, Cliff, the next day, those pictures would be on front pages of the papers. Uh, and I think that needs to be among the people that were executed were, were, was the Shah's first uh, minister of female affairs, was an elderly Jewish businessman was then it became religious minority, ethnic minorities, and so forth. The level of executions and arbitrariness of the revolution, I don't think should be discounted, should not, be, should not in any way be excised from our collective memory. This was a period in March, April, May, where all the promises were broken. Mm -hmm. uh, because Khomeini had privately given the Shah's generals immunity. Mm -hmm. He had said that you'll be immunized. One of the Shah's generals, General Muqaddam, who was the head of Sabah, was on his way to Prime Minister Bozagon's office to hand over the files to him when he was picked up and executed. I think his trial lasted 45 minutes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so the, the cruelty of Khomeini was on full display. His mendacity was on full display. Absolutely. Uh, 
uh, Khomeini was actually, in that sense, one of the most mendacious rulers we have, but we all can comment on that. No, I was just going to say, I think that uh, in some in some sense, the regime benefited for quite some time from the initial brutality, which I think shocked Iranians uh, in certain quarters in certain apologetic quarters where people like to point out to say, well, you know, the Iranian revolution compared to other revolutions, it didn't spill that much blood. But I think the only way you can properly look at this is within the context of Iran. It had been a long time since you had a Shah who blinded hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, that the the system was not used, the body politic was not used to this level of violence. Uh, and uh, I think it really threw people for a shock. I think a, a lot of revolutionaries, actually, if you talk to them privately, were ashamed of uh, the way they conducted themselves or the way they condoned or remained silent uh, when uh, Khomeini and his minions started ripping society apart. Well, the, the head judge, if you want to call him that, Khal Khali, publishes memoirs uh, in two volumes. At the end of his memoirs, he has before and after photos, before somebody is executed, like regular picture of an army officer, and after with the bullets written on his body. He has before and after picture of those he executed. Uh, yeah. This is, like, this is, I mean, it's in his memoirs. It's extraordinary. Yeah, the, I think it's fair to say the Iranian revolution brought force brought forth uh, those who reveled in the dark side. I mean, that's not unusual for revolutions, but uh, uh, a lot of folks who were would be who would have been considered sort of socially unacceptable within the clergy found uh, room for promotion. You know, by I think by summer, most journalists, myself included, left. I think, as I recall, the papers weren't that interested and didn't seem to be going anywhere special, nothing. It would seem to be here to be a quiet period. And then you come into the fall and, and what do you, and of course what you have in November is the, the takeover of the embassy in the beginning of what will be called the hostage crisis uh, where our diplomats are being abused and held and our, our, our embassy, which, which is sort of like sovereign territory is under their control. My impression from your book and other places is that at first Khomeini was dubious about this, and then at a certain point he realized that this was kind of revitalizing the revolution. And of course, the other thing he came to believe, which has been the ch chant along with death to America ever since, is the Americans cannot do a damn thing. He realized how impotent America really was. They were not going to do anything terrible about this absolute total violation of the most basic international law, holding diplomats hostage and taking over an embassy, the most basic violation. Yeah, it is my contention in the book, and I think there's evidence on the Persian side, and now we have some evidence on the American side, that Khomeini instigated the embassy takeover. He actually ordered it. Uh, and that's been... I think, Ray, I think you're being too modest there. I think you did some real groundbreaking research there. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, you see that on the Persian side, but now a series of documents have come about recently about the Carter administration, where in the first week, Stansfield Turner, the director of the CIA, told Carter that actually Khomeini ordered it. And it is sometimes suggested that not to get too far in the weeds, that the moderate, the provisional prime minister, Mehdi Bazargan, had recently met Zbig Brzezinski in Algiers in November, shortly before the embassy takeover. And that led to a lot of concerns among the revolutionaries. According to the CIA estimate, Khomeini had given the order for embassy seizure on October 16th before Bazargan's meeting with Brzezinski. This is in the woods. Now, why does Khomeini order the embassy takeover. Why did he? Why did he do this? Uh, I think at some level, the most important thing he wanted to convey. Not you can say that uh, the embassy takeover was designed to help the revolution consolidate itself by generating anti-American feelings and and so on. That that is a legitimate fair point, but that cannot explain 444 days. Uh, I think one of the principal motivations that Khomeini had in ordering the embassy seizure 
was to humiliate the United States. Absolutely. And was to suggest directly, Cliff, what you said, that America is impotent because America loomed large in the, in the Iranian imagination at that time. He wanted to demonstrate the impotence and inability of the United States to act. He wanted to suggest his revolution was so powerful. And I think it was to humiliate the United States, but also to personally punish Jimmy Carter. Mm. Uh, Khomeini despised Carter. He despised all Americans, but because uh, the support that Carter had offered the Shah during the during the, during the revolution. So there's a lot of other subjects I want to talk about, but in the interest of time, I'm going to kind of fast forward to the present or close to it, and just remind people: Khomeini died in 1989. He was succeeded by Ali Khamenei who has been the supreme leader ever since. He's now, what, 81 years old, I believe, yeah. from serves. He is an ardent Khomeinist. He also burns with hatred for the U.S. You have this interesting sentence in your book that he and his theocrats are in pursuit of the most ambitious imperial venture in Iran's modern history, and indeed <laughs> of this century, the most interesting ambitious imperial venture and that's not seen by so many that this is a matter of imperialism yes she imperialism uh i would say people always suggest that they both quote unquote sought hegemony in the region the shah's principal interests were actually more in the persian gulf area yeah. and iraq because those were neighboring states he didn't really have that much interest in the levant he mucked around a little bit in lebanon but the confused politics of lebanon distracted him he had no particular investment in Syria's future. If the Shah was exhumed today, he will look at what the Islamic Republic has done in terms of its imperial reach, and he would A, be impressed, and second, be shocked. Impressed that they have so much outposts throughout the region, and shocked by the sheer waste of resources that this country has poured into places like Lebanon, the Syrian civil war, uh, all the other plethora of proxies and, and, and groups that they have supported. Uh, the Islamic Republic's imperial policy is an ideological one. It is designed, it is motivated and driven by an ideological impulse. It has no cost-benefit analysis to it. Frankly, imperialism usually was not that profitable. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, actually, it has the costs are so much more obvious than the profits. I don't even know what the prophecy means. What does it mean, really, for the benefit of Iran to have a meaningful role in the politics of Lebanon? But Khomeini said this revolution is not about the price of watermelons. This revolution, yes. it's, a, it's an international revolution, and it yeah. must spread for, as you say, ideological or, one might say, theological reasons. Which brings us probably to, you know, the last subject for the last 10 minutes we have, which is that the Obama approach to say, you know what, if we tell Ayatollah Khamenei, he, he should have, we understand his equities, we recognize his equities, he should just be reasonable. He and the Saudis, you know, they should share the region, I think was the phrase he used. I think that's, this will all work out okay. And of course, sharing the region and taking half a loaf made, I, I would say, well, correct me if I'm wrong, man, that was never something that was going to be entertained by the theocrats in Tehran. No, no. I mean, if anything, actually, what was, I thought, more most wry was that uh, I think Obama's uh, evident desire to have an outreach to embrace uh, the revolutionary clergy actually uh, drove them away. There's nothing they hate more than than Americans trying to play nice, nice. Uh, the, I mean, I think it is extremely difficult for, it shouldn't for Americans, because let's be frank, uh, you know, does, has anyone had a more powerful mission civilisatrice in the Western world than Americans? So it should be relatively easy for Americans to appreciate when they see an Islamic version uh, and you know you don't you don't have a you you don't do a cost benefit analysis if you are motivated by the notion that you are you know recreating or creating a new civilization. Uh, it that is an end in itself, and uh, in fact to put a 
costs on it, uh, I think, uh, you know, does a disservice. I think eventually, you know, you do you do reach a point where even the most revolutionary regimes, uh, you know, just can't expend the money that they want and they don't have the resources necessary. I don't know in Obama's case whether he thought that because, you know, the, the, the his commentary on the Islamic Republic is pretty thin. So I don't know if he thought that the revolution was over, that they were at Thermidor. I don't know if he thought that the only reason they've been nasty is because we've been nasty, sort of the, you know, 1953, we did the coup and everything's in a response to that, which I would argue is just historical nonsense. Uh, but it's, it's difficult to know what really was motivating Obama. He certainly gave the Im- impression as early as 2008 that uh, if America would just extend, simply extend its hand, uh, then things would be better. Ray, give, give, give us your take on that, but then transition into what you think may be the take of President Biden, of Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, Tony Blinken, his, uh, his secretary of state. Uh, I would say one of the things that Americans persistently get wrong about Iran that Ruel has suggested and makes it difficult for them to understand it is that revolution has been destructive, but it has not exhausted itself. Uh, in the, in most revolutionary states at some point leave behind the slogans of the past and will become more pragmatic in some ways. Uh, you see that in the reaction of most revolutionaries. The Iranian revolution has not gone through that particular phase. It has never lost its vigor, maybe because it's a revolution that's animated by religion as opposed to Marxism. I mean, it's lost, it's lost people. I mean, it's lost been... people. It's yeah. lost the public, but the, the ruling class maintains allegiance to this system of ideas. And what Ruel said is more is actually quite interesting because even when the constituents abandon it, they haven't. They're not even smart politicians. I mean, they haven't changed their tune. They believe in what they believe, irrespective of the fact that they have lost the constituency. This is something Americans have never been able to understand about, is that the Islamic Republic is not about to forfeit its revolutionary ideals or as some kind of an arrangement with the United States or Saudi Arabia and so forth. That is actually those who are in charge believe in this mission. They believe the purpose of the, the purpose of the regime is to respond to God as they define what God wants. And I think I, you could even take it a, a bit further and say that the collapse of the revolution at home has actually fueled their desire to see the revolution succeed abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at considerable yeah. costs, which further right. undermines the rule at home. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's a, perverse, it's a perverse situation. For the United States today, and, and every time people ask me about the Biden administration, I always have a cautionary preface. Namely, I'm not in the council. So they look at Iran as an arms control issue. And every time an arms control issue enters a debate, it sucks all the life out of it. Mm. It becomes so very uninteresting. Iran is an interesting country. Uh, it is not about whether you put rotors in centrifuges in year seven or year nine. Uh, year nine or seven, whatever. It's, it's not about IRMs and IR2s. Those are important issues. But I think when I'm looking at Iran today, and, and I share this with Ruel and others, it's not so much Iran as an arms control issue, but as an exhausted revolutionary regime that is incapable of reforming itself and is facing persistent public pressure. And here's a commonality between Iran today and 1978. Because you take what people were saying about the Shah in 1978, and you replace the Shah with the Islamic Republic, and it's the same point. They've been around for over 35, 37 years. He faced a lot of crises. He has overcome them. There's discontent in the country, but the regime has resources and security forces to overcome that. That's what they were said about Shah. Exactly the same thing is said about the Islamic Republic. In one sense, the legacy of the revolution is there is none. <laughs> there is information and it's erased. Uh, so what I would suggest if anybody wants to look at is not so much the arms control issues sharing the region, but I do think the durability of the Islamic Republic cannot be conceded. 
there is something particularly abnormal about this regime ruling this population. And that imbalance, in my opinion, cannot be historically sustained. Well, if, 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 if the Biden administration does go back into the JCPOA, the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, does, does that increase the durability of the regime? Well, I mean, it's certainly going to give it more money. Uh, and that uh, I don't think it revives uh, philosophically, spiritually what's been lost. That's gone. Uh, so it, uh, I think it is important because if, 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 you, if you believe, as I do, that the revolution now has to derive sustenance largely abroad, then obviously having more cash to fuel that religious Shiite imperialism is uh, helpful. But it's not going to save uh, the regime at home in the same sense that having a nuclear weapon won't save the regime at home. Uh, I think some in the regime actually believe that having a bomb is a sort of a protective mechanism for the regime itself. I, I think that's wrong. I don't think it, it's true. It didn't do that. It certainly wasn't the case in the Soviet Union. I would but, say uh, just one thing uh, about this. The Democratic Party platform of 2020, the Biden platform, said explicitly that the United States does not favor a regime change in Iran. To me, no political party's platform has had a more morally vacuous phrase than that one. Yeah. To their credit, Republicans had no platform. Platform? Why? Rather not have a, have a platform than that one. Uh, the, the notion that the United States, you, don't, you can say that we are not actively involved in Iranian, Iranian politics, but to affirmatively suggest that we do not contest this regime's legitimacy, in my opinion, was morally reckless. Well, I would, I would also, I mean, use the historical parallel. Uh, I mean, at the end of the Cold War, the Democratic Party had gone completely south on the issue of the Soviet Union, and uh, you know, didn't envision they were detentus plus. Uh, the, but when the Soviet Union did go down and the Soviet empire went down, then it was pretty hard to find anyone on the left who didn't say, well, we were always in favor of regime change. But the royal, uh, royal, royal, I, I, I suspect the same thing what would happen with the Islamic Republic. They would uh, suddenly discover that, in fact, yes, we were always in favor of regime change. We just weren't in favor of a confrontational approach, something like that. But to be fair, during the entire Cold War, even during the Dayton period of 1970, no Democratic Party platform ever affirmed the legitimacy of Soviet state. Not the one McGovern ran on, not the one Mondale ran on, not the one Dukakis ran on. This was an extraordinary departure and a profoundly reckless one, in my opinion. I guess this is my final question. It appears that the Biden administration wants to get back into the Iran deal, but is not rushing to do so. It appears to me that the the, the, the the theocrats would like to revive the Iran deal, but they'd like to humiliate the Americans a little bit more before that happens. Do you have a sense, either of you, of how that plays out in Ruel, any sense of whether there's general agreement within this administration, which also has Rob Malley, who is seen as sympathetic to the regime, of, of what they're going, what policy they're going to settle on and what they're going to do? Well, I mean, I, I think they 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 have to figure out some way to throw money. I mean, it begins with them giving cash. So now, whether they want to do that in a large way, uh, whether they want to try to do that before uh, Hassan Rouhani leaves the presidency is an excellent question. I, uh, I ha have been of the impression that they want to do something before he leaves office. In which case, the Americans have to move first. They have to throw, I think, a fair amount of cash at the Iranians. We, they, the administration may fib in the way that they do it, and they uh, because I do think they they realize there's an embarrassing potential here. Uh, but uh, I, I do think the it is up to the Americans to to actually move first, and the only way 
they, they can move is by giving the regime more or less what it wants, which is hard currency. I would, largely, I, I would largely agree with that. I think there is a lot of showboating time there. We're not going to get back until you comply. We don't know. You've got to comply first. This will be choreographed. At some point, both parties will have some kind of a sequence when they essentially get back, quote unquote, to a deal. Iranians will get paid. And then there will be discussions about uh, renegotiating the deal, which will go nowhere. This is an administration that actually, on one level, has been very successful. It, it, it's rather clever. I don't know if it's successful, but it's clever. In the sense that in 2015, the proponents of the deal, many of the people who are in government today, argued with the critics. They said, no, this is a gold standard deal. This blocks all pathways. They argued with their critics. Hmm. When they say the agreement has to be made longer and stronger, that means it's short and weak. So they're denouncing the agreement that they want to go back to. But in a way, that's very clever. They're not disagreeing with the critics of the agreement. They're not arguing with the critics of the agreement. They're saying, you are absolutely correct in all your objections. And we are addressing those objections when three weeks from now, Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs in charge of Oceanic Affairs, by the way, that exists in Iranian Foreign Ministry, will meet its counterpart in Geneva and a technical group be set up to discuss this. And that's what I think they'll do for four years. And I actually think the politics are as such, well, they'll get away with it. <laughs> well, this has been fun. This has been fascinating. I've learned a lot. We'll have to get back together and in a month or two and see how it's going. Ray, you don't have to write another book in order to be get invited back. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> thanks for being with us, Ray. Thank you, Ruel. Thanks to all of you who have also been with us. Hope you've enjoyed it here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.